1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Natasha Heller, one of the hosts of the channel. We're here today to talk to April Hughes, an assistant professor in the Department of Religion at Boston University. She is the author of Worldly Saviors and Imperial Authority in Medieval Chinese Buddhism, published in 2021 by the University of Hawaii Press. Welcome to the show, April. Thank you so much. So it's great to have you here, and I wanted to just begin with a, an introduction question, and that is, how did you get interested in Chinese Buddhism?
0: Yeah, um, I was pre-med as an undergraduate um, and never, never anticipated going into Chinese Buddhism. In fact, I didn't know this was a field of study or a possible career, um, but I went on a trip to Thailand um, and went to a lot of temples as a tourist. And nothing that I saw was what I expected from pop culture. And so I had a lot of questions. When I came back um, in the fall, I took a Buddhism course to learn more and loved it. So I took another one, another one, and then next thing I know, I am um, applying to graduate school um, in Chinese Buddhism. And so that's really um, how it kind of happened.
1: So how did you, you know, I imagine that when you applied to graduate school, you didn't have probably this particular, the topic of your book in mind, but maybe you did. Um, So what led you from this kind of general interest in Buddhism to this specific topic of worldly saviors?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, When I, it was really Eric Zerker's articles on Prince Moonlight um, that really struck me and I was so interested at how these kind of apocalyptic ideas were used to both support and subvert the political establishment um, and I was just really interested in that dynamic and thinking through more about how that worked um, and how this same kind of ideology could be used in both ways um, and so that's really what got me kind of started on that and then just
1: just kind of to, to keep keep digging. Right. So a central concept in your book, as we can see from the title, is the idea of a worldly savior. Um, And I believe this is a term that you coined. um, And maybe you can explain to us what a worldly savior is.
0: Yeah. So a worldly savior Um, I I wanted to have the worldly in there because I think one of the important things is that they are in our world. They arise in the Saha world. Um, I I like to think of the worldly savior as a kind of cross between a Buddha slash Bodhisattva. So I'm I'm melding those two categories together, Buddha, Bodhisattva, and a wheel-turning king, and that they are kind of put together in a sense. Um, Worldly saviors have three important kind of characteristics. And so one is that they alleviate chaos. Um, And I leave that term a little bit vague at the start of the book because chaos depends on the text. (laughs) So different texts will have different definitions of chaos, um, but worldly saviors will alleviate some form of chaos. They are associated with the decline of the Dharma, um, so with the decline of the Buddhist teachings. And importantly, they both rule and liberate their subjects. Um, and, And that's a really important one. And that's where I see the kind of combination of both a Buddha bodhisattva figure that is the one that typically liberates with a kind of wheel turning king that rules. And so this worldly savior, both rules and liberates. And they do this on earth. And The fact that they do this on earth, I think is also a kind of important um, aspect of the worldly savior. So that's why I kind of coined the, the worldly to get that in there.
1: Right. So I'm wondering, you, you mentioned wheel turning kings and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and I'm wondering if we can explore how they relate just a little bit more. So, you know, if we have this kind of cast of characters And we're looking at them, how would we think about, you know, how would we know that we're dealing with a worldly savior and not like, and not a Buddha or a Bodhisattva? What would be the kind of key distinguishing characteristics there?
0: Yeah. And so I, I would say definitely there is the association with the decline of the Dharma, the alleviation of chaos, and this both ruling and liberate. Um, And so one of the things that I noticed when I was looking at these apocalyptic scriptures is the kind of difference in terminology. So usually, you know, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, they teach and convert, right? This is a really kind of common phrase. Um, Kings, wheel-turning kings, they can govern and convert, but a worldly savior kind of does both and so they usually are here you have a buddha bodhisattva that is governing and converting um, and governing over a kind of terrestrial utopia which therefore is different than a kind of regular i would say a tr- i usually call them traditional buddhas or bodhisattvas um, a traditional buddha or bodhisattva is not going to govern um, they're going to teach they're going to lead they're maybe going to converge but they're not going to govern Um, but a worldly savior governs. Um, And so I would say that's the kind of difference. And in a sense, it allows somebody who's a worldly savior to be the highest kind of figure in Buddhism, but at the same time, be a political ruler, which normally Buddhas should not be political rulers, right? So it allows somebody to both maintain their, their rulership, but also to um, to have the highest kind of figure, because if we think about a worldly a, a world turning a wheel turning king, a wheel turning king is the highest political figure, but a Buddha would still be higher, right, than it than a wheel turning king. Um, so it, it allows somebody to kind of occupy
1: both positions at the same time. Okay. That's great. So it's, it's a, I think that's very clarifying that the, the worldly savior has this kind of dual um, focus of the, the, the savior and the converting, but also that political role. Mm-hmm. So the other um, topic that you'd address in your introduction is the matter of sources. And you've kind of alluded to this in your answer to you know, what, is, what a worldly savior is. Um, so can you give us a sense of what kinds of texts you're looking at? And perhaps, too, what kinds of challenges these texts present? Yeah, the, the challenges are the, <laughs>
0: always the hardest part with these, with pre-modern sources, as, as all the listeners will, will know. Um, the apocalyptic scriptures um, come from Dunhuang. Um, and while it's great to have those, you know, what's the context, right? Like, who wrote them? Who circulated them? Who read them? we really actually have no idea. Right. Um, and so, or there's not an obvious answer to that, I should say. Um, and so one of the challenges is to create context or to find context for these apocalyptic scriptures. Um, and, and I remember still very, very clearly when I was, um, in the Bibliotheque Nationale and they brought me one of the paleo manuscripts of the apocalyptic scripture, um, that I, translate as a testing illumination, um, or the Zhengming Jing. And they brought it out to me. And and originally, when I had read about it, you know, people who have written about this talked about it as a kind of peasant rebellion text, um, you know, circulating among kind of the lower classes. And, and I do think that probably previous scholars did not actually get to view the manuscripts in person. Um, But when they brought out the manuscript to me, it had its original roller and in the roller was an inlaid um, enamel flower on both ends. The paper's really nice. The handwriting's, you know, good. And I just thought, Oh, this, this can't be, this can't be a peasant text. right? (laughs) This is impossible. Um, And so that kind of started me to think about, okay, how do I give this the more context? Um, And Attached to some of the uh, manuscript copies of Attesting Illumination is a miracle tale um, of Huang Shichang. And it's a, it's a very typical tale, which at first disappointed me, right? Um, he's mistaken for a pig butcher. He goes to hell. Um, you, know, he ch- you know, it's all chaos. There's nobody working, you know, that kind of thing. The, they're asking for bribes. And eventually he gets out by copying the Attesting Illumination. Um, and what struck me is that this is in a way, a kind of commentary in a sense on the text that somebody saw this text as a really kind of basic Buddhist scripture, right? Because if anybody who studies the medieval period, those, those kind of stories are very common, right? The mistaken identity, going to hell, coming back. Um, and so to me, it says that, you know, this is a kind of regular average Buddhist text to some people. And so... That gave me a little bit of context there. That not everyone is looking at this as a revolutionary text, um, and the fact that um, you know some of the elite monks at court quoted from attesting illumination in support of uh, Wu Zhao or Empress Wu Zetian um, also tells me that this is circulating in a kind of wider context. Um, And so with the apocalyptic scriptures, the context is, is really has to be kind of slowly built um, unless you get very lucky. Um, So that's, that's one of my main sources. Um, The other sources that I also found very challenging to use were the imperial histories um, and records of uh, the religious rebellions. And the reason why these are hard is we don't have contemporaneous records from any of the rebels or rebel groups themselves. We only have these imperial histories that are appearing sometimes centuries after the fact by people who abhorred these rebellions. (laughs) So trying to figure out as a way to give those context and to use the material in them was also a real challenge. Um, But one of the things, and we could talk about this when we get to chapter two, is to think about okay, if there's 10,000 people in this rebellion and somebody says, you know, they're the future coming of Maitreya, this must have been kind of believable, right? That, that certain amount of people were taking these things seriously. Um, and so it's really trying to give the sources a reasonable context when at first it feels like you
1: don't have any. Right. So, and you're also dealing with a fairly small number of sources. Is that true?
0: Um, yeah, I did try to limit them. I mean, if you, I, so I tried to limit, I mean, apocaly- there's many, many apocalyptic scriptures. Um, and so I really did try to limit them to the ones that include Maitreya or Prince Moonlight around the fifth, sixth century. Um, it, it it could go, um, there's, there's many. So I did, I did try to make a kind of limit.
1: So, um, and you, you've kind of mentioned this, that thinking about the audience for this text, this is one of the things that we don't really know. And so you've used some of these little context clues to give us a sense of um, who might be reading those. Um, I'm, and then in chapter one, you, you discuss, you, you've you already mentioned one of these um, apocalyptic scri- scriptures. You discuss four of them in chapter one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about what these scriptures share
0: yeah um, so I think you know one of my arguments is that even though they have different claimed affiliations, um, so one does claim to be a Ling Bao Daoist text, um, three claim Buddhist lineage. Um, I say that they share a kind of cosmology um, and that we can break that cosmology down into kind of three parts. so that the end of the world is imminent and that the world is going to be plunged into chaos um, towards that kind of end of the world. There are saviors, and they have terrestrial utopias. And in this kind of category, I picked just the ones that have Maitreya and or Prince Moonlight. Um, there is one text where uh, Maitreya doesn't appear, although the the name part of the name of the utopia is, is Tushita. So He's around, um, but thinking about the saviors, their utopia, and then also the saved who get saved. And what are the practices that kind of get you there? Um, and those kind of three pieces, the kind of world and chaos, the saviors, utopias, and the kind of practices, there's a lot of overlap in those kind of three, like cosmological parts. And so they seem to kind of share, um, these kinds of, um, pieces and so that I felt comfortable regardless of their kind of claimed affiliations with grouping them together.
1: Right. So you mentioned um, utopias and specifically Buddhist utopias. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit more information about these. Uh, you, we've talked about sort of chaos and these being the, the background of um, these texts as well. And I think we can all kind of imagine different types of worldly chaos, Um, What is a Buddhist utopia like for these texts?
0: Yeah, so the utopias are flat, um, almost always flat. um, And this really shouldn't be um, sometimes interpreted as um, a kind of flattening out of social hierarchy. Um, I would say the texts are clear that um, a lack of social hierarchy is part of the chaos Um, So they certainly, um, the flat part is related to something else, maybe ease of travel or ease of agriculture or something like that. Um, But they are flat. They are ruled over by a savior um, who is both a kind of ruler and liberator. Um, So both a kind of political ruler, religious teacher. Um, Food is easy and plentiful, often just kind of. Maybe one, you know, they, they, the numbers change, but sometimes like, you know, from one planting of seeds, you'll get like seven or three or five, um, harvests. So it's much easier to, to kind of, um, farm. Um, sometimes the clothes will just grow right on the trees. You can just pluck the things that you need. Um, and also interesting that I found is that they talk about both men and women, um, specifically, um, being able to live and enter this utopia. Which I take it is a lot because these are in the Saha world, right? There are terrestrial utopias, they are earthly utopias. Um, And people are let in, they're not really reborn. So on earth we have men and women. And so I think that's also a kind of interesting part of this utopia and probably something that was attractive um, to Wu Zhao, who we'll get to, um, is that these utopias being in our Saha world have both men and women.
1: So moving on to chapter two, there you talk about monks who led rebellions in medieval China. Could you explain the logic behind uh, Buddhist rebellions?
0: Yeah. Um, So, and I think this really has to go back to the worldly saviors. Um, If the person on the throne is not a worldly savior, they cannot bring about the utopia. And so they need to be overthrown. Um, and so I think the logic here with the, the Buddhist rebellions um, is that they are bringing about a, a Buddhist, a worldly savior ruler. Um, and so when we look at some of these rebellions um, it's clear that the change of government is needed for the kind of um, ruler to take hold. So when people are rebelling in the name of Maitreya, and it's not always clear if there is an actual figure of Maitreya in some of these groups or if they're kind of preemptively, like Maitreya is just about to come. So let's like let's get the ruler out of here so we can ready things for him. It's not always clear from the historical records. Um, but what is clear is that they're, their worldly savior figure requires the government to be overthrown. Um, Which then says to me that this is holding into that kind of worldly savior figure, right? That they're looking for a ruler who is both a Buddha bodhisattva and a political ruler at the same time. And so, um, and we can see that in some of the, the kind of titles that they apply to themselves, or that at least the historical records say that they were using. Um, and so often they include both imperial language, kings, emperors, but also Buddha and Bodhisattva terms. Um, and so Maitreya, Prince Moonlight, or, or sometimes just um, you know, Bodhisattva. So we, we can see that there's a kind of melding of both this kind of political and religious leadership in these figures. Um, and so I think that's why the logic is that the real, the, the, the current ruler is not creating this this utopia. And so that change in, in
1: leadership will create that or help create the conditions that can bring that about. Yeah, this was, uh, I found a really fascinating chapter. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how other monks or Buddhist institutions responded to these rebellions, these rebellions that had a kind of a Buddhist um, focus or inspiration?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So sometimes they would, you know, point out that, you know, which I think is interesting that, well, you know, um, Maitreya can't really come yet until Shakyamuni's, you know, teachings have disappeared, right. As part of the kind of, um, kind of canonical, um, uh, teachings. And so, um, you know, there's also some stories about, you know, that I include the story about Fuli and the fox, um, who is a kind of person preaching that they're Maitreya and, you know, one of the monks kind of unmasks um, the, the fox figure um, as a fraud. And so I think there were certainly, um, you know, some Buddhists who were trying to um, kind of tamp down on this. Um, but to me, that just says that there were probably a lot of people then buying into it. Right? Because you don't really need to complain about people believing the wrong thing if no one is believing the wrong thing. So the fact that they're upset about people following. Um, these Maitreya's or, you know, these Buddhist rebellions, it says to me that the y- y- people were, were doing that. Um, and so I think that, to me, that's the interesting kind of tension there.
1: Right. So in chapter three, you, the, you move on to talk about, and then the, the next three chapters each talk about um, rulers of some great just, you know, significance, uh, in Chinese history. And so chapter three focuses on Yang Jian, the founder of the Sui dynasty. Can you tell us a little bit more about Yang Jian and specifically what is his involvement in Buddhism? What makes him kind of a a special case if he is a special case?
0: Yeah, I I think he's a special case. I, I I picked, um, Yang Jian, both Yang Jian and, and Wu Zhao, um, Because they're founders of their dynasty, and because I think they fit with the rebels who I think are potential dynastic founders. And it's kind of my theory um, that these potential or actual dynastic founders just need to do more work to legitimate their rule, right? I mean, if your father is emperor and you become the next emperor, you probably don't have to do as much to, to prove that you deserve this, especially if everything's going great um, in the empire. Whereas if you're a dynastic founder, you've got to do a lot more work to, to show and to prove that this is, that you are belonging in this position. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why um, I wanted to focus on Yang Yangtian and, and Wu Zhao Um, but also because they have these connections to Prince Moonlight and Maitreya, both of them, um, Yangtian, um, we know is, was raised by a Buddhist nun, um, and certainly has some strong Buddhist connections. His wife also, um, was from a kind of well-known, um, kind of Buddhist family. Um, so we know that Buddhism kind of played an important role in his life, um, During the Northern Zhou persecution, um, he hid the nun who raised him in his home. Um, and if they would have been caught, like the whole family would have been executed. So we know there was probably a a kind of strong commitment,
1: um, to Buddhism. Right. So how did Buddhism, when he goes to unify, you know, these different kingdoms, how did Buddhism fit into, um, Yang Jian's plan for unification? Yeah, in a
0: way, it's such a perfect fit because he, you know, after the the Northern Zhou persecution, um, you know, you can imagine in some of these different places it was harder to practice Buddhism, right? And the whole point of being a worldly savior is in part creating a terrestrial utopia where people can practice Buddhism, and so in a sense the the timing of it all feels very perfect because his reuniting of the empire and um you know unifying all of these different kingdoms he was also at the same time reviving buddhist practice and allowing buddhist practice um, to take place in these these different regions and there's an interesting edict that's issued in 581 where he he whoever the author is but You know, it's the royal we, um, we regard the weapons of war as becoming like incense and flowers. Um, And so there's really this likening of like with each battle that he wins, um, with each weapon that he uses, he is making these offerings to the Buddha because Mm -hmm. he is going to be able to create this Buddhist pure land um, where people can practice.
1: You're right, that uh, it does align extremely nicely um, between his sort of political goals and his religious goals. Could you tell us a little bit more about, you've mentioned Prince Moonlight a couple times and that Yang Jen has a special kind of connection there. Um, what is that connection?
0: Yeah, so w- we can see that there's, um, in the scripture of the Elder Shikruta, um, and that is a canonical text that contains an apocryphal interpolation. Um, and it's a very obvious apocryphal interpolation because it mentions the Great Sway <laughs> dynasty. So it's, a, it's an obvious um, um, interpolation there. And what's interesting about that is that's where you really get the link between Yang Jian and Prince Moonlight. But because we're in this kind of canonical text, a lot of the canonical texts link Prince Moonlight and see Prince Moonlight as a kind of temporary savior figure. So Prince Moonlight can vary between texts. So sometimes he is a full-fledged apocalyptic savior that comes at the very end when, you know, all the chaos and the world is ending. But then he also has a kind of temporary time where he can come and rule for a short time. Um, and make everything better in this realm, but then the dharma is still going to decline afterwards. Um, and so, I think in this kind of apocryphal interpolation, it's more of this kind of temporary utopia that he's creating in the Great Sway, where people can kind of practice, um, be good Buddhists, do all the things they need to do, um, and be safe while doing it. Um, and that—that's kind of where. Um, his his connection is. And so it's, it's little less of this full-fledged apocalyptic savior um, and more of this kind of um, temporary
1: savior. So chapters four and five move on to deal with Wu Zhao. Um, why is she... So she merits two chapters, and this seems completely natural to me, but for any listeners who... Um, are less familiar with Wu Zhao. Why is she such an important figure in Chinese history and Buddhist history?
0: Yeah. She's the only woman to ever rule with the title of emperor. So we certainly have, you know, Empress Dowagers and other powerful women. um, But she's the only one that actually claims the title of emperor um, successfully. And I think what's interesting about her case is she's got to do so much to justify that rule, right? That I think we can see that process much more clearly, right? All the things that, um, that she needed to do to kind of justify why she should be the emperor because she's not a member of the Royal family. She married in, right? Um, she's a woman, <laughs> um, and her son is supposed to be the ruler, right? So there's There's all sorts of questions about her rule, Um, and so there's a lot of support then for her rule that we can able that we're able to look at and see.
1: Right, and that segues very nicely to my next question, which is, what do Buddhist texts do to support her claims to rulership? How do they, um, you know, speak to those issues that you just mentioned?
0: Yeah, um, this was my big question um, when I started to to really look at, you know, especially the commentary um, that is given to the throne. Um, It's presented to the throne. She's regent, but not yet emperor. Um, It's presented two months before she becomes emperor. And so I think it's pretty important to making her case and justifying her rule. And they quote from a testing Illumination, the the full-fledged apocalyptic Maitreya. And that was really my question, you know, why not link her to traditional Maitreya? Like what are what are they getting out of this worldly savior Maitreya? And and to me, that's really when it became more clear about why this Maitreya, what's what's the what does the apocalyptic part bring? And it's precisely this worldly savior. So if we think about if she's linked to traditional Maitreya, which the traditional Maitreya, right, comes in the far-off future, peace and prosperity, although everyone wants to think their realm is peaceful and prosperous. But it comes during the realm of a wheel-turning king. So if she's that Maitreya, who's the wheel-turning king? Maybe that should be her son and she should get off the throne, right? There's it kind of it, it, it kind of like creates a vacuum in a sense that she isn't really the person that should be on the throne. If she's the worldly savior Maitreya, then a worldly savior Maitreya is going to create a terrestrial utopia where that worldly savior is also the political ruler. And most importantly, because you can see which parts of the text they quote, that worldly savior must fight and punish transgressors. And so it fits so perfectly because actually anyone who fights against their rule. Must be punished by her, um, and if they're not, you know, she's not doing her job as the worldly savior. To prove her, you know, worldly saviorness, she's going to have to punish um, the insurrectionists, and so it, it fits kind of perfectly both the the kind of um, punishing that a ruler has to do, and especially a ruler that maybe is um, a little bit controversial, um, and that this, she's going to be both a ruler and the kind of head of the
1: kind of religious establishment at the same time. So you've just mentioned the importance of punishing, right? Um, and, you know, you've alluded to the fact that Wu Zhao is the only woman to have the title of emperor. Um, so, it, you know, her femaleness is a significant factor. Um, so how is this femaleness addressed in this, these texts? Um, because the models, right, um, are male models. So what, how, does, how does her femaleness come into play? What, what do the texts do with it? What do people other outside the texts do with it? And how is this different from how women had been regarded in other Buddhist sources?
0: Yeah, this was one of the things I wasn't sure when I really started reading what I would find, you know, and one of my questions is, yeah, how are they? How do they deal with her woman's body? Um, And they emphasize it. (laughs) It is emphasized everywhere. Um, And she often is kind of um, phrased as a sage mother, as a mother of the people, and we know that emperors were often considered fathers of the realm, fathers of the people. Um, but we know that mothers are understood a little bit differently. Um, and I would say, too, that during her reign, you know, she changes the way that mothers are understood, right? She changes some of the mourning rites. Um, you know, she sends off the Lee family princes to, be, to marry the ones off in the far northwest rather than sending, you know, princesses. Um, and part that's probably strategic to get rid of you know some of those extra Lee princes that were hanging around. But there's also this this a little bit of a flip there with with the, the gender. Um, and so I was surprised at the way that they they focus on it, but in the commentary especially, it really turns it into her strength. Um, it talks about how she is a bodhisattva. And as we know, bodhisattvas can appear in any form. She appears in the form of a woman because that's the form that her followers in the realm need. And so basically it really throws it back onto them, right? Like you guys are the ones that need um, a woman bodhisattva. And so that's why she is appearing in this way. Um, and so it, it really kind of turns what I think is her one of her greatest weaknesses, the fact that she is a woman. And it turns it into her strength. And I think the, the second other big weakness that she has is that she's not from the Lee imperial family, right? Like those are her two kind of huge weaknesses. Um, and the texts also answer that, right? She's she's often, especially in the commentary, talks about how she is a continuation and a support of the three, you know, Lee family uh, rulers who came before her, um, so it, it kind of couches her her reign as a kind of support and continuation. Um, the other thing I was surprised about is how much because we we hear a lot about how um, you know Buddhist was Buddhist ideas and things were supporting her because she's a woman and she needed that, but she very much also the the commentary also relies upon. What I would say is traditional Chinese, or you know, certainly non-Buddhist um, sources like the River Chart, and so River Chart is something that goes back, you know, um, to much earlier times. is not related to Buddhism, and there's also a River Chart which also mentions her womanness. Right? It, it calls her a sage mother, um, and so it seems like whether it's Buddhist or not, her female body is emphasized. But emphasized as a strength um, instead. Um, I would say, as far as the Buddhist sources, how is it different? Um, I will say that it, it, it does mention in the, there's also um, an interpolation of the scripture of reigning jewels, the Baijing. Um, that does kind of couch like, well, she's in a woman's body and they can't do everything <laughs> because they're women. Um, but she can still become a wheel-turning king and a bodhisattva, right? But, they, you know, she can't really become a full Buddha. So there's some acknowledgement in that interpolation that her woman's body is a little bit of a hindrance, um, which is similar to some, some Buddhist texts. But I would say o- overall, her, her woman's body in almost all of the sources is, is really relied upon as a
1: strength um, that supports her claim to the throne. That's fascinating. Um, so it, to me, it makes sense, right? And I think it, it's, kind, it's obvious that if you were trying to claim rulership, the claiming that you were also a bodhisattva would have certain advantages. Um, but what about the figures who are around Wu Zhao? uh her ministers, the officials, other people at court, were there ways that they used this idea of her being a worldly savior or a Bodhisattva um, to their own advantage or to, uh, to promote their own agenda?
0: Yeah, we we do certainly see that and I included those just because I thought they were so interesting. <laughs> um, we certainly see that in some of the edicts, you know some of her you know ministers will say things like, well, you know you should, you know, reinstate so-and-so. It's just, you know, as a bodhisattva, you should really be benevolent, you know, about this. Or, you know, as a bodhisattva, maybe you, you know, should rethink spending so much money on, uh, you know, some Buddhist, um, some Buddhist sculpture because, you know, there's emptiness. So don't forget that, you know, that we, we don't, you know, everything's empty. We don't need to spend so much money. And so they do seem to be kind of, um. Playing with these terms, I mean, we have no idea, right, what people thought um, or what people believed inside. Like we can only go with with what is said um, or what the kind of historical sources say. But it certainly seems like people were using these terms to to talk about her and to talk to her. And we really don't start to get the kind of virulent anti-Wu Zhao um, until the reign of her grandson after he kills the Taiping princess, which is her daughter, um, that, then there's a real shift in how Wu Zhao is talked about in the historical records. But prior to that, um, you know, there's an edict from her son that refers to her as emperor. Um, so there's, it, it doesn't seem like the rhetoric, the rhetoric seems to really shift a, a while after her death. Um, and it doesn't really seem like during her lifetime, at least from what we see. Um, and of course um, there were, you know, um, objectors, but those were the transgressors that needed to be punished, right? <laughs> um, the people who made it through, we don't, we don't tend to see a whole lot, even right after her death. Um, but not until, not until a few years later.
1: So you've mentioned, you know, how Wu Jiao was regarded, uh, in later periods. And then in your conclusion, you also look a bit to later dynasties. Um, and so this identification of rulers with worldly saviors continues in some form. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about what you saw in terms of, and I know you know, this moves outside of the scope of the book, but some of the patterns that you saw um, in taking the ideas that you worked with and looking in these later time periods.
0: Yeah, um I you know, I looked briefly at some of the later dynasties. I do think a lot shifts like after the An Lushan rebellion and you know, there's a there's a lot of kind of um change. Um but there is certainly still identifications with bodhisattvas. Um and you know, we we do have several, you know, famous examples of, you know, emperors kind of playing at um I'm thinking of um, Empress Dowager Sushi so kind of posing for photographs as as Guanyin Bodhisattva. Um, so there's certainly um, kind of dress up um, or being painted um, as the Bodhisattvas, as Tianlong uh, was was painted as Manjushri, um, and so there certainly still seems to be identifications with um, Bodhisattvas and certainly with Wheel Turning Kings. Um, It it does feel a little bit like there was a shift away from the worldly saviors, although I can't say um, as I define them, Um, but I can't say for certain. Um, And I think what would be interesting is to really look at dynastic founders in detail, which I didn't do of the later dynasties um, because I do see that's. I think that's where you really see it because with dynastic founders, I think there needs to be more proof um, of why they need the throne, um, and so that's I think where it stands out more. Like with Yang Jian, with Wu Zhao, with the rebel leaders, because they're all dynastic or potential dynastic founders. And so, I think kind of looking carefully at later dynasties and potential founders might might be a good idea. But I certainly, you certainly still see the traditional Bodhisattvas um, and playing at incarnating as a bodhisattva, um, in later dynasties.
1: Right. So you've been really generous with your time. And I'm wondering if we can borrow just a few more moments to ask you what's next. Do you have a new project that you're working on? What, what's, what are you looking to focus on in your next work?
0: Yeah, I'm looking um, at a set of Dunhuang manuscripts. Um, as Dunhuang is the place I kind of circle around, um, And so I'm looking at a set of Dunhuang manuscripts, um, and, and looking at how they deal with popular practices. Um, so I'm interested in the kind of strategies, um, that these apocryphal, so texts that are written, um, in China, how they kind of deal with popular practices. You know, if you do certain practices, are you going to hell? Can you replace them with Buddhist practices? Um, just kind of thinking through about how they're kind of dealing and managing these popular practices. um, That's kind of my larger kind of set of questions. And what I've been doing more recently and more narrowly um, is looking at the material aspects of some of these manuscripts. So what does it tell us um, if you have a booklet with one of the texts I'm looking at and then, all of the other texts, the four other texts are chanted texts that we know were chanted. Um, Well, that tells me that the text I'm looking at, the scripture I'm looking at is probably a chanted text, right? So trying to get um, some more information from the kind of material clues um, from the manuscript is really what I've been kind of doing actually this past year, um, is thinking through how how I can create that context <laughs> again, which is always the challenge, I think, with the apocryphal text from, from Dunhuang, um, is how to create the um, kind of context. And so I'm trying to do that first through the material aspects of the manuscripts and, and then to kind of broaden it out from there.
1: That sounds fascinating. And I really look forward to seeing that new work. Um, with that, I think we'll draw this to a close. And thank you again for spending time with us. Uh, we've been speaking with April Hughes about her book, Worldly Saviors and Imperial Authority in Medieval Chinese Buddhism, available now from the University of Hawaii Press. And this has been New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Natasha Heller. Thank you.